So weird, so weird, so weird. And I was going to say also, kids, I want to encourage you. This is my notebook. I, I start a new notebook every year. And to be honest, this one on the front of it says great ideas. I want to cross out the great, but you just can't write on these books very well. It should cross it out and I want to put, it, put God ideas. Um, and I want to encourage you to take notes. When you're in church, if it's on your phone or if it's on a bit of paper, have a pen and a bit of paper handy because God wants to speak to you this morning. And kids, I want to encourage you, take notes. Draw pictures about what he's talking about. I'm sure he'd love if you draw pictures about it. Show him afterwards and see what you spoke about. Yeah, um, I draw pictures while I'm preaching. Yeah, so, so. I'll, I'll leave it to Brian. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Good deal. Thank you. Thanks, Coxie. Uh, good morning. I'm, uh, I'm really excited to be here. This is the tail end of my week. I arrived last Friday, uh, and tomorrow I head to Melbourne and uh, fly back. I, it, April 3rd is the longest day of my life. Uh, I leave at noon on April 3rd. And I arrive back in Seattle at 6 p.m. on April 3rd, but I have about 30 hours of travel that happens during that as well. So um, I'm home at 6 p.m. on April 3rd, and then I'm home for about 30 hours before I fly back across the country in the U.S. to Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and then I'm there for two days speaking at a conference, and then I fly to Los Angeles to speak at a conference. I get home, I think, on April 9th or 10th, somewhere in there. Um, and my body is going to be really, really mad at me. Um, I'm not going to know what to do. Australia has been on my bucket list forever. I can remember as a young teen thinking if I could travel anywhere in the world, where would I want to, where would I want to be? And Australia has always been that place that I've wanted to go. And so this has been a completion of a bucket list. Getting off the plane last week, landed in Auckland and then had a couple hour layover and I felt like, oh, I'm getting so close, I'm getting so close. I started saying good day a lot just to get myself ready and then I landed and, and I felt just so alive. If you had those like totally just alive moments in your life, you think back on things that have happened that you felt the most alive in your life. I can remember a couple stories that come to mind just so you get to know me a little bit and uh, that I'm not just this speaking voice at you. Um, one of those moments happened when I was uh, 17 years old. I did not, was not raised in the church. Some of you have come uh, to faith later in life. That, that was me at age 17. We went to, to Christmas and Easter services at churches growing up, but uh, sports kind of became my God, and, and so tournaments and things like that really got in the way of going to church, and so my brother and sister were really happy that I excelled at sport so that we didn't have to go to church. Um, and I, I absolutely did not like going, and I started getting invited to some youth groups and um, a, an organization called Young Life, a parachurch organization, and I said no to all my friends that wanted me to go to it because I felt like, ah, it's that God thing. I talked to God every now and then before a, a test. I said, God, get me through this, you know, and I, um, that was about my relationship with God at that point. But my friends, uh, during the, the high school years, went to this camp, called Malibu. It was a Young Life camp. And they came back from it and said, Brian, you have to sign up for next year. And I said, no, no, it's too churchy. And they said, there are 300 campers. 200 of them are girls. Sign me up. So I went to camp looking for a girlfriend. Instead, I found the gospel. It was the first time that I'd ever heard the, the best news of our lives, and that is that we can be set free 
that night, June 28, 1990, when I trusted in Christ, that evening they had a program for us where we all had to get dressed up in country gear, western gear. Um, and so I was wearing my flannel, and they started with the square dance. And we were doing the O Johnny O and the Virginia Reel. If anybody knows square dancing calls, um, I don't, but I just remember those. And we are doing these, and then they went into 50s music, the, the Beatles and things like that. Richard, you probably remember that. That was your era, right? That was funny, right? Okay. Then we went into 60s music and 70s music, and they got all the way up to the 90s music. If you remember MC Hammer, Too Legit to Quit, you remember that? That was, uh, that was my music, 1990. And as soon as they got down with that song, it was midnight. We're all in just sweaty and everything, and they said, Campers, to the pool! And we're all dressed in our gear, and we all went, and there's this huge pool. And I remember jumping into this pool the night that I became a Christian. And as I was in the air, I just thought, self-baptism! And I went into the water, and I came out of that water. And I felt more alive, more free, more high than I ever had felt. I don't know any of those unnatural highs of drunk and, uh, or, or being high on drugs or anything like that, but this euphoric feeling of being free in Jesus was amazing. I fast forward a couple years and I remember my wedding day. I only wanted to protect a few things in terms of um, my wish list versus my wife's wish list for the wedding day. Um, one of mine was I didn't want pictures before. I wanted to see Elizabeth for the first time walking down the aisle that day. And when the mo mom and mother-in-law stood up and she was walking towards me, I felt so alive. It was one of those alive moments. Last one that I'll share just so you get to know me a little bit. A few years after we were married, I was sitting down, as any, any of us do in the morning, having a, a bowl of cereal, and my wife walked in, and she had a smile on her face, and she said, we're pregnant. I was so excited, but I had no idea what to do in that moment. You know, I was, and I just went over to her, and I put my head up against her belly, and I said, hello, baby. And she kind of laughed, and she's like, I don't think the baby can hear you yet. I didn't care. I just, oh, hello, baby. And this set the next nine months of my life. I became so annoying to her as I talked to it. And now we were non-finder outers. I don't know if that's an Australian uh, phrase or not, but I was not the one who went and got the ultrasound. Well, it would be her anyway, but I was not the one to go and find out. And Elizabeth didn't want to know. We wanted to be surprised when that baby came. And so we named it Zygote at that time. It's not an American name, but it was just this little Zygote inside. So we referred to the little Zygote in there, not knowing if it was male or female. I was a youth pastor. So my church was really annoyed with me because they all want to know, do we get blue or do we get pink? And I said, I don't care. Just give me money. That's fine. <laughs> we can buy the clothes. Okay. So we are, uh, we're, we're not finding out, and as the, the pregnancy progressed and the belly started coming out further and further, mine and hers, um, I started, hello, baby, over and over and over again. Eventually, at youth group, when I was speaking, we'd get done, and Elizabeth would say, the baby was completely moving tonight, totally recognizing your voice, and, and, and by month seventh or seven or eight, and those that have had kids, you know, you start seeing like fingerprint, you know, fingertips and, and feet and things like that, and so the baby was like giving me like knuckles and stuff like that early on. It was awesome. The baby was due on January 6th. January 6th, went by January 7th, January 8th, January 9th, January 10th, 
my wife's back was killing her. We called the doctor and they said, if you haven't had it uh, by January 10th, we'll go ahead and do the induction. And so we went to the hospital at like six o'clock in the morning to get induced and and they put this huge needle in her back. It was freaking me out. And they started pumping this drug into her called Pitocin that, that induces the labor. And 6 a.m. happens, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. You fast forward 26 hours of my wife pushing and getting up more drugs up her back. And it was, it, was, it was grueling. And finally, the next morning on January 11th, her heartbeat, uh, the baby's heartbeat going 140 beats per minute, all of a sudden dropped to 40 beats per minute. And the alarm bells go off, and the doctors come rushing in. The nurses pull me into another room, and they put this garb on me. And I go back into this room, and I'm freaking out. And my wife is strapped down to a bed in the form of a cross. And I'm going, what's going on? I walk in. I hear the doctor saying that we need to cut her open, or immediately we're going to lose the baby. And, and I'm holding my wife's hand, and we're praying together. And, and she's freaking out, and I'm freaking out, and the doctors are kind of freaking out. And all of a sudden, they, they, they begin the surgery, the emergency C-section. And I kid you not, I, I kind of wanted to look up in the mirror slash light to see what was going on. But then I realized when they're saying, we got to move, remove, uh, you know, move some of her organs. I'm going, I don't want to look anymore. And then they started talking about their golf game and a holiday coming up this weekend and things like that. And I thought, okay, the doctors are talking about golfing. I can go ahead and relax. Everything's going to be okay. And they started t- relaxing. And only like 10 or, 10, 10 or 12 minutes into the surgery, they said, hey, do you want to find out if you're having a boy or a girl? Well, we're non-finder outers. So I'm like, no, I don't want to know. We don't want to. And they're like, no, literally, the baby's coming out. You're going to have to know now, okay? And so they pull the baby out and they said, you have a beautiful baby girl. And as soon as they're saying the word girl, I hear, wah, 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 and I'm like, put it back, put it back. And you just hear this, she's screaming and I'm holding my wife's hand and I'm so excited. We're like praying and praising God. And and Elizabeth says, do you want to go see her? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, and I, I walk over and this, just this table that they're cleaning her up and everything. And I just hear this, and she is so loud. And I just walk over and I go, hello, baby. And Hallie's eyes pop open and her mouth shuts and she just stares at her daddy. She recognizes the voice of her father. My prayer for us this morning as we open God's word is that same thing, that we would hear the voice of our father this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful for the opportunity that we have to be in your word today, to hear your voice. Speak to us clearly as we contemplate what it means uh, to know our story and to make our story known. God, I pray that we would not just be hearers of your word, but that we'd be doers of it as well. In Jesus' name, amen. See, my most alive moments, whether it be when I got married, when I became a Christian, when we had our first baby, these alive moments are life-shaping moments. Some of my most alive moments that I've had in life also go to mission trip times when I've been able to meet with youth like we have up here and take them on trips. I know for, for Matt and Sam and Josiah who have come over to the States and done a, an internship with me and my church, that was a life-shaping thing for them, a life-changing thing for them. And I believe that when God takes us out of our comfort zone, sometimes he does this life-changing thing to us. But I also have seen mission trips go, go the wrong way, too. 
as a youth pastor in the States, I had a lot of my friends that would essentially buy spiritual highs for their, their youth groups. They'd go across the border into Mexico, and the, they wouldn't prepare their kids at all. They would just go down there, and, and they would do vacation Bible school, kids' activities for, for the little kids while they built homes. And kids would get up, give, get up, uh, give up their iPhones or their iPods for the week. But as soon as they came back across the border, they said, give me my iPhone back. Give me my iPod back. And, and they, nothing would change about their life. And I believed that God had something greater for the students that I was shepherding the students that I was a steward over their life. And I thought, I've got to figure out a way to do missions that is really life-changing. And so the first church out of college that I went to, I got there, and I had a, I had a, uh, a leadership team say, we are really into missions at this church. And I thought, great, so am I. And, and they said, we want you, your goal is to make students love missions. And I said, okay, how do I do that? They said, take them on a trip. And I thought, that's cool. I like trips. And they said, I said, where, where can I take them? And they said, anywhere that we have a supported missionary. Now, our church, just like yours, has a foyer area out there. And on that, in that foyer, they had a big map of the world. And they had little push pins on each of the places that we had supported missionaries. And like I told you, from a teen, I wanted to go where? To Australia. You guys even say it right, Australia. I don't know if I'm saying it right yet, but... I wanted to go there so badly that I looked and I went over to the map and I thought, okay, this is about where Australia is, I think, and it was, but we didn't have any push pins there. There was one over in Papua New Guinea, so I said, ah, close enough, we'll at least have some sort of stopover in, in Sydney or something, right? And so I called the missionaries, and I think her name was Carol or something like that, Carol and Fred that were serving in Papua New Guinea through New Tribes Missions, and I made this long-distance call back in the, in the 90s. It was like you had the really long delay on the phone, you know, and so it was doot, and she answered, and hello, and I said, hi, this is Brian. I'm at Melrose Community Church in Roseburg, Oregon. We support you. Oh, hi, Brian. She didn't know who I was at all, and I said, we'd like to come over there for a couple weeks this summer and do a mission trip. And she said, oh, what would you like to do? And I asked to speak to her husband, the, the Fred, and, and she said, oh, he's up with the tribe right now. And I said, is there anything that we could do? And after about a 10-minute conversation back and forth, we, we settled on what she thought we could do. And she said, well, we have about 40 acres here, and there's a lot of blackberry bushes. Maybe you can cut down some blackberry bushes. And I thought, that's not really missions, is it? And I said, is there anybody that you work with? And she said, well, there's a senior center. There's 11 women that, that are there, but none of them speak English, and none of them can really hear either. thought, well, I don't want to bring a bunch of teens over there. And she said, I think that you should cut down the blackberry bushes. And I had this thought, why would I take kids overseas and, and take them on a mission trip to do what they're not even doing at home? And I wonder about that when it comes to missions in general. Why is it that we're st sending students, not just students, but sending adults overseas to be a missionary to do what they're not even doing at home? And here's what I mean by that. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says to his disciples, You will be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. The, the disciples themselves, the 12 that Jesus trained, the 11 that were still remaining faithful at this time, didn't listen to that and say, oh my goodness, Jesus is telling us to go way over there. Do you know how they contextualized it? They did it right there, right here in Jerusalem. 
Because we don't see the apostles themselves outside of Jerusalem in Acts 1 or 2 or 3 or 4 or 5. Yes, the American can count. Or 6 or 7 or 8. It's not until Acts chapter 9 that we even see one of the apostles stepping outside of Jerusalem. That doesn't mean that they didn't, but there's no record of them prioritizing Judea, Samaria, the uttermost. In fact, it's Philip in Acts chapter 8 that we see him in Samaria and then eventually with the Ethiopian um, in Acts 8. So the apostles themselves contextualize missions by understanding we have to reach our own neighborhood first. And so that's what I thought. How do I get our students to love missions in our own backyard? And I was laying in bed, and, and uh, Josiah, you and I on Saturday morning watched a show, what was it called, Sunrise? Is that what it's called? The, so it's Good Morning America in America, but it's Sunrise here. It's the morning news thing, and they have little special features, I'm sure, in, in Australia that we have in, in the U.S. too. And I turned on the TV, as any good youth pastor would at 10 a.m., because that's when we get up. Um, amen. Thank you, Sam. So I was laying in bed, and, and I was just flipping through the morning news one time, and, and I kid you not, there was a man standing with a dart in his hand, and there was a map of the United States behind him, and I just happened to click on this channel right at the right time. His name was Steve Hartman, and he said, I have a concept that everyone has a story. And he said, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this dart, and I'm going to throw it over my shoulder blindly, at the map of the United States, wherever that dart hits, I'm going to take my camera crew and we're going to spend three or four days in that town. I'm going to open up a phone book and I'm going to point at a random name and I'm going to find out about that person and their story because I believe everyone has a story. And so he throws it and it hits some place in Podunk, Nebraska, some small town, probably similar to Colac. And, and it hits this, hits this, this, this little town, and he takes a camera crew there, and he opens up a phone book, and Pete Nelson is, is the name that he hits, and he says, I'm going to prove that Pete Nelson has a story. They go over to Pete Nelson's house, sight unseen, knock on the door, and introduce themselves to Pete. They spend three or four days going to Pete Nelson's work, spend, spending time with Pete Nelson's family. They go to Pete Nelson's pub that he likes to go to after work, and they interview all these people around Pete Nelson. And I was sitting there for 10 minutes, intrigued on this complete stranger's life. And, and you find out that he knew Dwight House, Eisenhower's cousin and, and you know, all these other famous people, and, and, and he's just one person removed from knowing somebody that I knew, basically. And I thought, this is so cool. I can do this with missions. And I thought, this is what I'm going to do with youth mission trips. I'm going to throw a dart at the map of the United States. I'm going to train up 12 to 15 teenagers. We're going to go into that town, and I believe the Holy Spirit will have gone before us and prepared our work. And so that's what I did as a youth pastor. Now, I didn't quite throw a, map, a dart at the map of the United States, but I picked regions that I thought, these are probably small towns that have never really been reached by on-fire-for-Christ Christian teenagers. So we would train through the spring so that we can do a summer mission trip. And what would happen is we'd roll into this town and we'd do holiday club essentially in the morning, VBSs in the morning. We call them vacation Bible schools for the little kids. We would do service projects in the afternoon. And then in the evening, we would do youth outreach. So whenever we saw teenagers in that town, we'd roll up into the little grocery, the little corner IGA, and we'd get out to go get Cokes, and we'd run into other teenagers, and we'd say, hey, come to the park tonight at 6. And they'd say, why? We'd, we'd say, because we're going to be there. They'd go, okay. 
And they would show up. And we would play Ultimate Frisbee or we'd play a game called Rabbit Six. We'd play football. And we would break for a few minutes just to give them sodas. And I would, I would have one of our students, I'd say, John Paul, share your testimony now. And John Paul, having been trained, knowing this is his opportunity to share about his faith in Christ, would share for four or five minutes a bit of his story. And all the teenagers in that town would listen. John Paul may have never shared his testimony for Christ before this mission trip, but he was emboldened and empowered, and he did it, and it grew his confidence. And he came back to our town, his own school, and began to be a witness in his own Jerusalem. And I think that God is at work in this generation to do the exact same thing. These little kids that were up here this morning that you saw sing and pray and praise God, we need to embolden and empower them and equip them to be the best missionaries Australia has ever seen. Amen? And that can happen. I want to look at a passage of Scripture uh, this morning. Let's see if I'm way behind on my slides. I am. We have to understand that mission is here, there, and anywhere. That was one of my points that I didn't make, but you can make that now. Okay? Here's the reality. Is that mission is over in the United States. We need some of you to be equipped and empowered to come over there and to kick our backsides for the gospel. And we need to send some over here to do the same thing. But first and foremost, I don't want to send teens overseas to do what they're not even doing at home. I don't want to send any of us overseas to do what we're not even doing at home. Our coffee shops, our workplaces, our neighborhood is our first and foremost mission field. We have to know that mission is here, there, and everywhere. Let's look at a, a passage of scripture together in Mark chapter 2. And I know that this is probably pretty small for, for several of us, but I wanted to fit it all on one slide. It's a story of Jesus returning to Capernaum. It's early in Mark um, Jesus has done some miracles, and so when it says a few days later he returned, that means he had been in Capernaum before. In fact, if you read up, this is probably where Peter and, and his in-laws lived. And the, the house that is referred to is probably Peter's mother-in-law's place as well. So it says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large number that there was no room left, not even outside the door. Now, with this as our backdrop, with this as our passage up there, I could easily just read the passage to you, but I would rather invite us into our imaginations just for a few minutes here. Understand this, that if we have 200 plus people in this room, I want you to picture right now 400 plus people in this room. I want you to look at the windows to the side and even the door right here, and I want you to picture faces of people smashed up against the window looking in. Because that's what's described here. It says, there were so many people gathered that there was no room even left outside of the hallways. We were all crammed in here. Now back then, there wasn't deodorant. There wasn't showers. There wasn't shoes. You can imagine the smells, right? There wasn't air conditioning, or air con, as you call it. They were packed in like sardines. There were probably some little kids, just like we have, running around. But there wasn't much room to run around. There were so many gathered that they wanted to hear what Jesus was going to do or say next. And as the crowd was gathering, as you got here this morning, you saw the cars pull in and people were running in or walking in and, 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 and greeting each other. That's what was happening there too. I wonder what Jesus is going to say as they gathered. But the scripture goes on to say that there was at least four of them that were going the opposite direction. So as everybody was coming to the house, there was these other guys that were running the opposite direction. 
I can imagine a few of you saying, no, no, it's this way. Jesus is this way. And they're like, we know. See you later. We'll be back. Don't worry. Where were they going? What were they doing? They gathered in such large numbers that there's no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. These four guys went the opposite direction to go get their friend Bob, we'll call him. So as the crowd was gathering, they started sprinting the other way. They said, we got to go get Bob. we got to go get Bob. we got to go get Bob. And they got to Bob's house. They pulled back the thatch, and they said, Bob, we got to get you to Jesus. And he said, Jesus. And they said, you know the one that has healed the lepers and stuff? Maybe he'll heal you. And he said, yes, let's do it. And they picked up the four corners of the mat, and they started running. This is why I call him Bob. Just picture it. As they're running with the mat, Bob, 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 Bob. He's going as fast. They're going as fast as they can. They come around the corner. Can you picture their faces as they see the house, and they see the crowd, and they know, how are we going to get this guy to Jesus? They think about it for a second, and they, they try to push in through the back doors, and everyone's like, no, 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 no. And they thought, okay, we've seen the teenagers do this before. The, you know, clubs and stuff like that, they have the, 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 the people surfing and stuff like that. They think, let's do this with Bob. And so they get up, and they're like, all right, let's do a mosh pit right now. Let's try to get Bob up to the front of the crowd. Now, I know the scripture doesn't quite say this yet, but I'm reading into it, okay? And they're trying to get Jesus. Now, nobody wants to po- pass Bob, do they? Nobody wants to touch him. Why? He's a paralyzed man. Do you know how he got this way? Well, tradition would have it that he's a sinner. He's this way because of his sins or the sins of his father. He's been labeled. He's been put in a box. Sometimes we're put in a box, aren't we? Sometimes we put ourselves in that box. I'm an addict. I'm a failure. I messed up yesterday. I can't be touched. I'm not holy. So they tried, and they couldn't do it. They gather themselves back up, and they get into a little huddle. And some of you guys know, you know, rugby and stuff, and the squirmish, and what's it called? Squirmish? What? what? Scrum. You know, they get in that little huddle. Well, an American gridiron, you know, we have the full huddle each time. I picture these guys getting into a huddle. Bob's just laying there on the floor, and he's going, what are they doing? What are they doing? And all of a sudden, they say, break, and somebody says, get a rope. Bob didn't like that moment, by the way. They get a rope, and they start roping him up, and somebody climbs up on the roof, and he gets down, and and I, I picture it this way. He's got his ear. He's got his ear to the roof, and he says, right here. Right here, I can, hear the, I can hear the king's voice right below me. And they say, start pulling back the, the, the tiles. And he starts hammering through. And now if Jesus was teaching and we hear this thud, 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 we're looking up. We're going, what's going on? Jesus just keeps teaching, thud, thud. And they pull back the tile roof. And can you picture the dust particles start falling through? And then it wasn't just dust particles. It was Bob. He's just sitting there. I think that they, they lowered him right to eye level of Jesus. I think Bob looked at Jesus, and Jesus just did a little wink right back at him. And then they lowered him to the floor. And he's sitting there at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says, hey, Bob, get up. Your sins are forgiven. Well, actually, he said your sins are forgiven is what he said. He didn't say get up yet. He says your sins are forgiven. There's doubters in the crowd, just like today. There's doubters in the crowd. And Jesus knows this in their heart. 
He says, that, so, so those of you that are doubting, so that you might know who I am, might know that I am who I say that I am, what's easier for me to say your sins are forgiven as you as Pharisees could do? In fact, you religious leaders are jealous right now because you know that you're the ones who are supposed to say this. You're the, one, you're the ones who are benefiting sometimes from the sacrifices, the meat that you're getting from that. You're the ones who are taking payments for this. You're thinking that's what I'm doing. But no. Let me say this. What's easier? For me to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Now, we all know Bob can't walk. His, his, his muscle is completely atrophied to his shin. There's no muscle there. He can't walk. And yet, he does. He stands up and he walks in front of them, completely healed. Amazing. There's a key verse that I want us to concentrate on right here. Verse 5. As they're trying to get the man, Bob, to Jesus, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, whose faith? When he saw their faith. I love that word there. I want you to picture the four guys with the rope. Can you picture their faces? The face of hope as they're lowering that mat? We got him to Jesus. We have such hope. When Jesus saw their hope, when Jesus saw their faith, when he saw Bob wink at him, Bob knows Jesus is going to do something amazing right now. When he saw their faith, what if we had that faith for our neighbor, for our coworker, for the person that comes into our coffee house? What if we knew that person in our school, in, in our family, who doesn't yet know Jesus, what if we had that sort of faith for them? That no matter what, I want to get this person to Jesus. No matter what, I want to get this person to Jesus. Because mission is here, there, and everywhere. But it starts right here. It starts right here. When he saw their faith, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. What is it about Mark 2 that really stands out to me? It's counterintuitive. See, we keep doing the same old thing the same old way at churches, and we think we'll get a different result. Well, that's called insanity. Literally, the definition, keep doing the same old thing the same old way and expect a different result. I'm really trying to get rid of this addiction, but I'm going to go ahead and keep putting this thing in front of me and expect a different result. Mm -mm. It's counterintuitive. As the crowd was gathering, there was four guys that said, you know what? We're going to go the opposite direction. What else? It's creative. The front door to somebody's soul is very rarely open. The front door to that house, they could not get him in the traditional way. They had to think of a different way to get to the foot of Jesus. But we keep trying the same way, don't we? Hey, got to come to this. Got to come to this event. This church thing that we're doing, you got to come to that. What does it look like for us to invite somebody to ourselves before we invite them to church? Invite them for a Coke. Invite them for a barbecue. I hear that you guys like to put shrimp on a Barbie. Just joking, I know. But have them over for a barbecue before you're saying you should come to a Sunday morning service. Invite people to yourself. Get them to know you. Do life with people so that you can share about your life that you have in Christ. And the last one is Christ-focused. It wasn't about getting them to the house, getting Bob to the house. It was about getting them to Jesus. It's not about church, y'all. It's about getting people to Jesus. That's it. Hard stop? Is that what you guys call period? Hard stop? Full stop. Full stop. Okay? It's about getting people to Jesus. Full stop. Word. 
All right. <laughs> the youth can relate. Yes, I get it. They're the only ones who are relating to me right now. <laughs> but why? Why is it? Well, see, we are just like those people back then. I want you to just quickly picture yourself if that was you in Capernaum that day as we begin to land the plane on the sermon. Who are you in the story? Are you the doubter? Yeah, I've come to Colac Church several times, but I'm doubting that this, this story is really true. Are you the onlookers, the people that come each Sunday and we hear a message, but it doesn't really change anything about us. We just keep hearing the message. We're just kind of onlookers. But here's what I'd say. If you saw Bob, who could not walk, get up and walk, could you walk away and not tell anybody? We have to tell somebody, our husband, our wife, our son, our daughter, our neighbor. I just saw this. I'm going back to the States, and on Thursday night, I got to see footy. I'm telling my friends about footy. Do you know how much more powerful Jesus is than footy? But I talk about the things that I love. Well, I love footy and I love gridiron. I talk about those things so freely. Why am I not talking about Jesus so freely? Let's talk about the things that we love. Let's not just be onlookers. Let's be tellers now. Oh, the one that we all want to be, the friend. Those of us that are in Christ, we want to be the friend that's going the opposite direction. And maybe some of you are, really. And I've met some of these teens this week that are the friend. They're thinking, how do I get my friend to Jesus? And I love that. And I'm sure there's adults in here that same way, little kids in here that are the same way. I want to be that friend. And here's what I'll say. There's some of us in here that are in need of healing. And maybe it is physical healing. Bob needed that physical healing, but Jesus was concerned with the heart. That's what Jesus wanted. He wanted to heal the person, forgive the person. And if you're in here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord, you have not trusted in Christ, know this. And I want everybody's eyes up here as I, as I literally, I am winding down the sermon, I promise. But everybody's eyes up here. I want you to know this, that Jesus, God himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, built you, made you to be in relationship with him. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that. But here's the deal. Every one of us has turned our back on God. Adam and Eve originally by reaching for the fruit. You and me by lying or cheating or stealing. We have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory. We've all said, I can do this on my own. And then we all said, I can make up for it on my own too. Because my good is going to outweigh my bad and, and I'll get heaven. But that's not what Jesus and God said. God said, you know what? There's only one way. And that is through my son who I'm going to sacrifice on the cross for your sins because a payment needs to be made and I'm going to do it in the form of my son because I love you that much. And that's what we're going to celebrate in a couple weeks with Easter, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Because God created us to be in a relationship with him, but every one of us has turned our back on him. And God knew that in advance and he said, I'm going to send my son to die on the cross in your place so that our life might be restored by placing our trust in him alone. And it truly is by grace alone, by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that no one of us can boast about what we did, but we can give praise for what he did. Amen? And God wants that relationship with you. If you do not have that relationship, you are laying on the floor right there, and your friends around you have lowered you to the foot of Jesus, and they want you to rise up and be forgiven for your sins by simply placing your trust in him and him alone. And you can have that today. For those of us that are in Christ... Here's what's going on with us. 
why we're not sharing this, why we're not being the friend, why we're not going after Bob, is that we fear rejection. You know what? You as adults fear, and so we as teens fear. You as teens fear, and so the kids, little kids fear. We fear rejection, but you know what if our rejection was not fearing our rejection, but fearing for our friends who are rejecting Christ? Second thing, I want you to know that evangelism actually drives discipleship, not necessarily the other way around. We as a church in America have, have put such an emphasis on maturing in Christ before we ever go out. I believe it's the other way around. If we go out, we actually need to come back and get built up. If we go out and try to share Christ and don't have the answers, we need to come back and say, I need to hear Andrew's sermon. I need to meet with my, my small group of guys that I'm hanging out with, and I need to get built up so that I can go back out. Evangelism drives discipleship. And the last one, We've got to model it. I'm a 40-something. My 15-year-old daughter, 13-year-old daughter, and and 9-year-old son need Brian and Elizabeth to model peer-to-peer evangelism. Too often as a youth pastor, I got in front of a a group of teens and I said, you got to bring your non-Christian friends to youth groups so that I can share Christ with them. I wish my teenager would say, Brian, who are you sharing with at a peer-to-peer level? And I, I fear rejection but I also understand that I've got to model it in order for the teens to live it, in order for the kids to get it. Mark chapter 2 is a powerful, powerful story. Practical is here's where we're literally landing. We've got to prioritize a heart for Christ and a heart for the lost. We have to prioritize it. The last point is you don't have to be gifted in it. You just have to be obedient. Success in evangelism, success in sharing your faith has nothing to do with you. It just has to do with the obedience. Whether or not the person you're sharing with ever comes to know Jesus is really not up to you. It's only up to the Holy Spirit. But we do have to be obedient. I'm not great at mercy, but Scripture tells me that I have to show mercy. You may not be great at evangelism, but we're told to do the work of an evangelist. We have to work at these things. We have to rely upon the Holy Spirit for these things. Let's pray. God, I pray that this would be a, a priority for Colac Church. Lord, for, for this group of brothers and sisters who love you, Lord, I pray that they would love the lost as well. Thank you so much for the opportunity that I've had to come to Australia to learn, to glean, and to take home. God, I pray that I have left some things here for some people to think about and to pray about. And Lord, as the band comes up to close us in a song, I pray that we would just have a, a moment to think about who we are in this song, I mean in this, in this scripture, who we are in this story. God, for those that are the onlookers, may they go and tell. Lord, for those of us that are friends, thinking about our lost relatives, our lost co-workers, our lost neighbors who don't know you yet, may we invite them to ourselves before we ever invite them to church. God, maybe tonight in a more, more contemporary environment, more laid-back environment, invite them to something like call Cafe Church where they can get to know a lot of other people in a, in a relaxed atmosphere. I pray that we would even do that today. And God, for those in here that don't know you, God, I pray that today would be the day that they would say yes to you. And just in the silence of this room, if that is you, with everybody's heads bowed, 
God, I would pray that, that if somebody's in that spot where they just say, you know what, I know that I've turned my back on God. I know that I need forgiveness. I know that I need help getting over this, that, or the other. And I've been trying it on my own. God, may they come to a place where they just simply say, Jesus, today I trust in you as Lord. Jesus, today I want forgiveness of my sins. Jesus, today is when I'll start following you. Thank you for what you've done on the cross. Something that I couldn't do, but you've done for me. And by grace alone, I place my trust in you. With everybody's heads bowed, I would simply say this. If that is you today, I'll be standing in the back at the end. I would love for you just to shake my hand and say, that was me today. I put my trust in Jesus. God, as we enter into a last song, may we just celebrate Celebrate what you're doing in the midst of this church, in the midst of these people, and how you desire for us to go out and make you known, to be an example anywhere. Amen. Let's stand. And if that's you this morning, please respond as Brian's encouraged you this morning. That you can know Jesus as your Savior today. Let's stand and let's sing it's about this amazing grace that God has given us. Let's sing and let's praise God for all that he's done, for, for his healing power. It's at work in our lives. Amen.